at the end of the first year of this podcast, which stretched from December 31st of 2020 to New Year's Eve 2021, I sat down and took a look at my stats for the year. While there's plenty of room for growth, as any new podcaster would tell you, it's been the most fun I've had working since I was in my early days of radio. Ideally, I'd make enough money to turn this into my full-time job. My family would tell you that it basically already is for the amount of time I spend on it. I've fallen in love with finding strange and fascinating stories that aren't often discussed, researching the heck out of those topics, and sharing it with you, the listener. So, I wasn't looking at the stats to see how rich I'd become. I was looking because, as a relative new kid on the block, I'm curious how people find me, where they find me, and where they're listening. I do pretty well in Michigan. I'm from here, and many of the topics I've discussed have Michigan roots. I do well in Arizona. Thanks, Dad. Ireland seems to like me okay. Australia, Ohio, all Curator 135 friendly markets. But then I looked deeper and found that for all of the random countries I can claim to have listeners in, there are a number of states in the good old U.S. of A. whose residents have not found me yet. Not once in 365 days. Not even by accident. So my OCD kicked in and I thought, if they're not going to come to me, I'll go to them. Not literally, of course. Remember, I don't make money on this yet. But via the podcast. If I can find some interesting topics from these states, maybe they'll have to listen. So as any good fisherman would do, I'll change my bait. Maybe Wyoming doesn't like worms, so then I'll switch to crickets. But if I'm going to do this from time to time, I can't just grab any old topic or story. It has to catch my attention. It has to be strange. It has to be mildly dark. And most importantly, it has to be something that you didn't know you wanted to learn about but you're happy you did. So look out, South Dakota, and Utah, and New Hampshire. Sometime in year two, I may be coming for you, to hook you on the Curator 135 line and reel you into my net. As we start year two of the podcast, let's set our sights towards the Great Southwest, and a state that sits between Arizona and Texas. A state I've never been to, and a state who has never listened to one single episode of this podcast. Episode 33, The Emperor of New Mexico. Arthur Rockford Manby was born on July 14, 1859. The Manby family lived in the tiny fishing village of Poulton Le Sands, Lancashire, England, which sits nearly 70 miles north of Liverpool. Side note, Lancashire may sound familiar to some people due to it being mentioned in the Beatles song A Day in the Life. John Lennon wrote the song while perusing the January 17, 1967 edition of the Daily Mail and came across a story about the 4,000 holes in Blackburn, Lancashire. His parents, Reverend Edward and Emily Manby, had nine children altogether, almost yearly for a stretch of time. Clara was their first child, born in 1850. Then came Erdley in 1851, Edith in 1852, Charles in 53, and Emily in 1854. Mother Emily gave herself a break in 1855, 
before having Ernest in 1856, Alfred in 1858, Arthur, the subject of our story, and finally Jocelyn, a boy, in 1862. A year later, the sixth child, Ernest, passed away unexpectedly at the age of seven. The rest of the Manby children went on to lead long lives. By all accounts, the Manby family led a typical life in their spacious seaside home. Arthur was educated in Belfast, Ireland, studying architecture and mineralogy. Like his mother, Arthur was also known as a talented watercolorist. His parents passed on at the relatively young age of 59, with Edward dying in 1876 and Emily two years later in 1878. Emily Jr., Edith, and Clara would later marry at different points in their lives. Not much is known about what became of Erdley. Alfred, Jocelyn, Charles, and Arthur, however, had some adventures ahead of them. In the early 1880s, the three youngest Manbys became interested in stories they'd heard of the western frontier of the United States. Arthur had read in British newspapers about the untapped resources and untamed wilds of New Mexico. There was great potential to become rich and lead the lives they couldn't live in England. So they packed up their belongings and left for America. In 1883, the Manby boys sailed to New York and then hopped aboard trains. Charles left for Pennsylvania while Arthur, Alfred, and Jocelyn took a train to Raton, New Mexico. Arthur had his sights set on being a cowboy, despite looking like a hoity banker. When they arrived at their new home, Arthur was 24, Alfred 25, and Jocelyn just 21. Three young, handsome British boys in the Wild West. What could go wrong? The earliest mention I could find of Arthur Manby in the States appeared on May 13th of 1884. On the Sunday before the article was published, around 7 in the morning, a man named D.B. Griffin showed up at the Manby Ranch in Castle Rock, New Mexico. He had a small pack of Mexican men with him, and they were looking for someone that the Manbys may or may not have been harboring. A gunfight broke out, with Griffin firing first and grazing Arthur in the hip. Jocelyn and Arthur returned fire, with Arthur putting one in Griffin's temple and another through his heart. There was a hearing in front of a judge, but they found the Manbys innocent of any wrongdoing. In October of 1884, someone apparently stole one of the Manby brothers' horses. A letter was sent by Arthur to the newspaper offering a $500 reward for the capture of the culprit and return of their horse. Arthur wanted the cowboy life, and within his first year, he seemed to be getting it. In the following year, a man named James Masterson younger brother of Bat Masterson, best buddy of Wyatt Earp and former sheriff of Dodge City, became the sheriff of Colfax County, where the Manbys resided. At some point, Arthur Manby joined Masterson's militia. It was found out that around this time, the Manbys had built their ranch on a swath of land within the Maxwell Land Grant. A land grant, for those that don't know, is a gift of real estate or land made by government or other authority. The real owners, the Apache, had no say in the matter. Lucian Maxwell, who'd inherited the land grant and later fought off the Apache, expanded his land through fraud, mostly. By the late 1880s, through Supreme Court cases and more battles, most of the inhabitants of the area gave up and left. Arthur Manby moved north towards Taos in northern New Mexico. Jocelyn headed just over the border into Colorado to work with the purchase and sale of livestock, while Alfred married and traveled back and forth from the States to Great Britain, ultimately finding work as a shoemaker. In 1895, Arthur Manby found himself involved with the Mystic Gold Mine. The mine was located on land that the Native Americans believed to be cursed. 
Considering the amount of deaths that occurred in and around the mine in the 30 years since it had been discovered in 1863, they may have been right. Manby entered into a gold mining syndicate with a man named John C. Ferguson and another miner named James Wilkinson. The Mystic Mine made all three men very rich. It was also rumored that Manby often stole gold nuggets from the nearby Aztec mine. Some years later, Wilkinson will vanish, never to be seen again, and Ferguson will wind up in a mental institution haunted by decapitated ghosts. Ferguson's share of the mine will eventually end up in the hands of his daughter, Teresita. She'll work her way back into the story soon enough. Between 1900 and 1910, not a whole lot of information is available regarding Arthur. It can be assumed that those ten years were spent acquiring various properties by nefarious means. He promised a lot of things to a lot of people and sought investors and loans from folks in England, New York, and Chicago. He believed in the area and the beauty it held. He had big plans. He just needed some rich people to buy into his ideas. There are countless court cases with the Manby name attached, generally over tracts of land and owed money. To aid in his acquiring of investors, Manby started numerous business fronts. This included the Taoist Land Company and the Colonial Bond and Security Company. There's a string of mentions in newspapers from 1907 to 1908 that reveal Manby marrying, having a child, and then having his wife sent to a sanatorium. As I found to be the case with much of this man's history, nothing is ever mentioned about a child again, so who knows for sure. All of these accounts only solidify the idea that Arthur Manby was a swindler, cheat, and manipulator. A con artist first and a cowboy second. Things will only get weirder. In 1913, Manby was able to reach another of his lofty goals by acquiring the Antonio Martinez land grant near Taos. He took control of nearly 59,000 acres of land that included a sought-after hot springs right off of the Rio Grande. His ultimate vision for the property was a massive resort that would draw in affluent people from all around the globe. In 1914, karma started to rear its ugly head for Arthur Manby. The headline from the July 28th edition of the Santa Fe New Mexican read, Another well-known New Mexican sued for alleged trifling with feminine heart. Los Angeles woman sues for $50,000. At some point two years earlier, a British woman living in California named Margaret Waddle was visiting Taos. She met Arthur and fell in love. Arthur had apparently courted her, promised to marry her, and then borrowed a whole bunch of money. Then, shocking to no one in Taos, said, Sayonara, sweetheart. She was seeking damages for her broken heart and moving expenses. The court battle would rage on for almost two years. In the end, a jury valued Waddle's broken heart at only $17,600, which a judge knocked down to twelve grand. On May 7th of 1915, a German U-boat torpedoed a cruise liner running from New York to Liverpool. There were nearly 2,000 men, women, and children on board the Lusitania at the time. Almost 1,200 of them drowned. Over 100 of them were American. Some saw it as a blatant act of evil and transgression against the conventions of war. It's one of the key events that led the U.S. to enter World War I in 1917. But what does this have to do with Arthur Manby? Well, on May 13th, there was a special correspondence in the Santa Fe New Mexican with the headline, First Fight Over Lusitania Sinking. It reads, What is believed to be the first fistic encounter in New Mexico resulting from the sinking of the Lusitania by a German submarine 
occurred here at the Barker Hotel. A.R. Manby, a well-known Englishman of this place, and Leo Bloch, a German employed by the Gerson Gustorf store, indulged in a heated argument over the sinking of the big liner, and finally came to blows. The engagement resulted in a victory for England, Bloch retiring with two very black eyes and a bruised face. Manby showed no marks of the battle. I love vintage reporting. Have I mentioned that before? I probably have. Why just fight someone when you can have a fistic encounter? And back then, they reported on everything. I found countless news briefs about Manby returning from vacation or having dinner parties. Earlier, I mentioned a young woman named Teresita Ferguson. She was the daughter of a former partner of Manby's in the gold mining syndicate. With Teresita getting her father's share, this kept Manby and Teresita close whether they wanted to be or not. At this point in the timeline, Manby is in his late 50s, and Teresita is nearing 30. Despite the age gap, it's reported that Manby is quite smitten with the younger woman. Teresita Ferguson was a tarot card reader, a believer in dark magic, an alleged swindler in her own right, and also occasionally a victim of Manby's cons. Apparently, whether they worked together or against one another, the two strong-armed the Taoist community over the course of the next ten years. As Manby got older, and he lost more friends and more investors, his schemes changed. Manby and Teresita got together to organize what they dubbed the United States Civil Secret Service Society. Rich men in the area paid to be members either willingly or in some cases forcefully in the secret shadowy organization. Once the hefty dues were paid, members were promised a cut of whatever reward money was brought in when criminals were captured. Rarely would members see any money back and it was known that Manby's gang were responsible for many of the murders and robberies in and around Taos. Most citizens were scared and wouldn't risk taking the organization to court. It didn't hurt that Teresita's rumored black magic ties were always lingering in the backs of people's minds. By the 1920s, it was rumored that Manby was in debt for nearly $1 million. He'd lost the friendship with Teresita, who claimed that Manby took all she had. Everyone in Taos despised him, and there were few places outside of his own home where he was welcome. He was becoming a paranoid hermit. His crew stopped hanging around and offering their protection, and he placed iron bars on every window of his spacious 19-room hacienda. He also purchased two or three police dogs. He became a homebody, only ever spotted outside in his beautiful, well-manicured garden or on his roof doing bizarre things. On June 19th of 1929, Margaret Waddle came back after Manby in court. She was still seeking the money granted to her in the lawsuit 13 years earlier, and she wanted 6% interest tacked onto that sum of around $12,000. Arthur Manby never showed up for court. On the morning of July 3rd, 1929, U.S. Deputy Marshal Jim Martinez approached the Manby residence to serve him with legal papers related to the Waddle court case and the whole not showing up thing. The deputy marshal heard the barking of dogs, but no one came to the door. He then headed to the courthouse to see if anyone knew of Manby's whereabouts. Taoist Deputy Sheriff Malequius Martinez, his younger brother, and a man named George Ferguson were at the courthouse talking. According to Ferguson, who by the way was the nephew of Teresita, he thought Manby was dead, claiming to have seen flies swarming all over the back screen door. Together, the three of them returned to Arthur Manby's home. At that point, the rumors of Manby's death had spread throughout the area. 
a crowd had gathered around the property. One man, Carmen Duran, joined the group and together they walked around the high adobe wall, climbed it, and approached the back patio door. It was at this time that Carmen Duran announced that he had a key. This may be a good time in the story to let you know that Carmen Duran, at the time, was married to Teresita Ferguson. Here's how J.C. Moffat from the Kansas City Star reported the next few moments playing out. The men clustered about the door and beheld a ghastly thing. Then, in a little corridor, lay the decapitated body of a man. He lay on his left side with his shoulders on the pillow of a wobbly army cot. A khaki jacket he had been wearing had been pulled up beneath his arms, revealing his only other garments to be his underwear. A blanket was thrown carelessly across the body, and from beneath this his socked feet protruded. While the men stared at the grisly object before them, a great police dog came charging and barking from somewhere within the house. With bared fangs, he stood at the doorway, threatening the intruders. Shut up, Lobo, said Carmen Duran. The dog growled and backed away from him. It did not venture to attack. Duran led the dog out into the bright sun of the patio and tied him to a tree. Now the whole party made its way into the house. They sidled past the army cot with its gruesome burden and moved into another room. Horrors were not over. In the exact center of the carpet lay a bloody head. It was fully 16 feet from the shoulders of the man who lay in the vestibule. It scarcely could be called a head. It was a raw skull. The features had been mutilated beyond recognition. There were a few gray hairs similar to Manby's, and that was all. The deputy sheriff said that there must be a coroner's jury. He went out to summon several citizens of Taos. Dr. Martin, Manby's neighbor, testified Manby was subject to heart attacks. Someone pointed to the gray hairs found upon the dog. It was suggested Manby died from a heart attack and that the carnivorous beast, desperate with hunger, had gnawed his head from his shoulders. The jury quickly came to a verdict of death by natural causes. The corners of the blanket upon which the body rested were gingerly picked up. The body was placed in a box of wooden planking, the head placed with it, and the entire thing carried to the rear of Manby's property. Here, it was interred within sight of Manby's stables and within 30 feet of the grave of Kit Carson, the great scout whose Indian fights are the epic of the Southwest. Someone said the dog should not be permitted to live, and Martinez went over to the tree and shot him. Subsequently, the other two dogs on the premises were shot. J.C. Moffat, the Kansas City Star What was seen and what took place that day has never really been in question. All parties seem to agree that that's the way things went down inside the home on July 3rd. What is in question, still to this day, is the lack of any sort of real investigation. They went in, found a body, found a head, saw a dog, killed the dog, buried the body, and that was that. Half of the four men had some form of association with a woman who should have been on the top of their investigation list. No one questioned how George Ferguson was privy to the flies on the back porch screen door when you couldn't see it from behind the wall. There's no record of anyone questioning Carmen Duran, Teresita's husband, and how he came into possession of a key to Manby's home. The rumors spread around Taos at a rapid pace. Why would a dog, even a hungry one, start at the skull, and then strip away the flesh in an almost perfect manner? Who was able to recognize Manby's face if there was no face? In fact, the jawbone was found later, 
Why was there no blood splatter? Or signs of blood on the dog's mouth or nose? Was it even Manby? Was it a corpse dug up by Manby who is now in hiding? It wasn't long before government officials in New Mexico realized that they had a problem on their hands. Two of the Manby brothers, one writing from England, were demanding that a real investigation take place. The body was exhumed and an autopsy was performed at a mortuary outside of Taos. The findings were that the head was removed by a sharp knife, not a dog's teeth. With those findings, the rumors seemed to heat up that the body was not even that of Arthur Manby. In September of 1929, Jocelyn Manby spoke to the press from his home in Colorado and called the rumors of a hoax absolutely ridiculous. In January of 1930, newspapers received a photo of someone that looked an awful lot like Manby standing in Italy with the words, Remember me? written on the back. The Italy rumors took hold when a Taoist couple returning from a trip to Italy claimed to have also spotted him. By March of 1930, the Department of Justice launched a probe into the death after the British Embassy placed a little pressure on the U.S. Money was put forth by the governor of New Mexico, and a U.S. operative was sent in to dig into the case a little more deeply than local law enforcement had. Eight months passed, with the operative following leads and digging as hard as he could. He closed his portion of the investigation with a letter to the governor. He ruled the death to be murder with robbery, jealousy, fear, and vengeance as motives. His key suspects were Carmen Duran, Carmen's brother George, Teresita Ferguson, and her nephew George Ferguson. He ended the letter by stating, I do not see any mystery to the A.R. Manby case. If less publicity, less talk, and more work was done, the guilty party could be brought to justice without much time. So, case closed, right? No. There were no funds to keep the investigation going and no further interest in the case from federal agencies. The whole ordeal was swept under the rug. By this time, the Manby home and its surrounding property were being auctioned off. Or at least they were trying to auction it off. Like everything else in the man's life, there were complications. The Colonial Bond and Security Company, a company founded by Manby, claimed to have the rights. The president of that company? Teresita Ferguson, of course. Dr. Victor Thorne of New York City owned the mortgage based on a loan he'd given to Manby that Manby never repaid. And also, there was the fact that Teresita, her husband, and nephew had moved into the house, almost immediately following the discovery of his body the year before. They also sold off or called dibs on most of his belongings. In 1931, Teresita Ferguson, her common-law husband Carmen Durand, and her nephew George Ferguson were tried and convicted on charges of burglary and arson. They were each hit with a four- to six-year sentence. Teresita was released on parole after only two years and eventually given a full pardon. In 1955, she was charged with witchcraft and fraud after duping an elderly Santa Fe couple. Despite a mountain of evidence, she was acquitted. She spent the next 20 years of her life performing psychic readings and reading tarot cards at fundraisers and festivals all around Taos. Teresita Ferguson lived in Taos until 1979, when she passed away at the ripe old age of 91. She was the only person with ties to the mystic mine that seemed to beat the curse. So, did Manby make one too many enemies in his life, and one of them finally got their sweet, sweet revenge? Did his brothers help him start a new life? Did he start a new life without telling a soul? Did he die of a heart attack, and one of the dogs got hungry enough after three days that he chewed his master's head off? The world will likely never know. He's buried just outside of Kit Carson Park in New Mexico. 
This story was a hard one to research. Much of his life was little blurbs in newspapers, mostly consisting of lawsuits and land grabs. It was the Wild West. Newspapers weren't always the most reliable. Teresita's name is spelled differently in almost every story. A majority of the man's life was full of backroom deals and hiding away in his hacienda. It's very possible that some things played out differently, so my apologies to any family that is still around. Let me know if I missed something. The internet is not full of manby facts. There isn't even a Wikipedia page. What? This is another one of those stories where I'm not sure why no one has made a movie about it. It has the Coen brothers written all over it. In 1973, author Frank Waters wrote To Possess the Land, a biography of Arthur Rockford Manby. Finding a copy can be difficult and expensive. In 1977, a man named Stephen Parks wrote a play called Manby that was only ever performed three times in Taos. In 2012, James S. Peters wrote Headless in Taos, the dark-fated tale of Arthur Rockford Manby a short, semi-fictionalized version of events. The hot springs on Manby's original land are called the Manby Hot Springs now, and are a tourist attraction in the area. His home has been used by the Taos Art Association and features a museum and gallery which I believe is still open today. So, thank you, New Mexico, for never once listening to the podcast. Had you of, I may have never found this amazing Wild West mystery. And thank you to my patrons, at the varsity level, we have Dave O. At the JV level, there's Jim D., Marie L., and David M., and our new freshman curator, Laura J. If you would like to support this podcast, please visit my Patreon page, patreon.com slash curator135. There's also links on curator135.com. You guys are the reason I do this. Join the team and help make year two even bigger and better. Stop by and say hi on any of my social media pages. Just type in Curator135. The shop is open with some great show-related merchandise. If you enjoyed this or any of my other podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It really helps. As always, be good to one another and be creative. The world needs you. Uno Cuatro. Cuatro.